Okay, let's go and talk to you today about Philippians, the way to joy, and we're going to talk about today's shine. Philippians 2, verse 12 through 18. Stand with me for the reading of the word and the word of our Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Lord God, here's the word that, Lord, I think it's so fitting for the time that we're in. Lord God, you are calling the church to be the church. You're calling us, Lord God, to throw off, Lord God, all the things that entangle us, the sins, Lord God, the worldliness, and to truly be the church of Jesus Christ. Lord God, in this last hour, the time is ticking. Speak to people's hearts. Have your way with them, Lord God, and accomplish your good and purpose will here this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to give you just a quick outline of what I'm going to be teaching on today from this verse. And it is this. Number one, climb. Number two, don't whine. Number three, shine. And number four, be wine. Can you say that with me without the numbers? Ready? Climb, don't whine, shine, be wine. Did you notice that it all rhymes? It'll make sense to you. Okay, first thing, first thing here, climb. So in Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13, here we begin, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What you have here, what we call the two sides, okay, of salvation, the two sides of Christian growth. You have the divine side, that is God works in us, giving us the desires the passions, the energy to do his will, to obey him, to grow. The human side in verse 12 is that we work out. Now notice, we don't work for our salvation because our salvation has already been bought and paid for on the cross. But it's not saying that we're saved by works. What it, what it is saying here, though, is we work out, right, our salvation. And that is us working in cooperation with God, with the Spirit, putting forth effort, right, putting forth discipline so that we may grow and be conformed to the image of Jesus. So there are many comparisons that you see in, in Scripture. And, right, this one, very, very simply, is, right, the Christian life is a workout. Right, we, we work out our salvation. Growth and Christian growth occurs when we work at it. Not when we wing it. You ever see winged Christians? Some of you here, you have the, the winged disease. 
you wing your Christian life. Yeah, you wing it. You know, if you feel like it, you do it. If you don't, you don't. If you feel like praying, you pray. When you feel like coming to church, you come to church, right? You feel like giving, you give. When you don't feel like it, you don't. You're a winged person. This, this is saying that we should be work at it people. And to work at it, okay, is to be disciplined. It is to be passionate, right? It, it is to leave mediocrity. It is to leave apathy. It is to leave undisciplinedness and laziness. So, again, there are these illustrations that you see that the Holy Spirit gives us on the Christian life uh, that have to do, they have to do with, with effort. So, work at your salvation as God works in you. I want to show you another one. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is a race. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that it was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. To run a race, right, you want to you throw off those things that can ensnare you. You throw off. I want to share you. My first triathlon that I ever did, uh, my wife and this woman are standing on the shore, and it was in a lake, and I'm swimming, and I, as most of us do, we swim crooked. And I was swimming crooked, and I ended up close to the shore and got caught in vines. I mean, I'm talking like I was worried I was going to drown. And I'm like, I'm like pumping through the water. And I'm also, right, I'm in, at the time, the 50-year-old group. And I look back, and there's a bunch of 40, 30, and 20-year-olds. And, it, it, you know, it's just like you, all you see is the water, right, and these arms flailing. And they're coming, right, they're coming for me. And I'm in there flailing around in the vines. And my wife says to the woman, which one is your husband? She goes, oh, that guy, that guy up there up front. And then she, the woman says, which is your husband? That guy. And you know what? The woman said, does he know how to swim? <laughs> I did get out of the vines, and, and I finished. But things that entangle us, sins that entangle us, those could be things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, or those could be things that you're not doing that you should be doing. He says, run with endurance. It is a marathon, not a sprint. You ever see people come into the church who are sprinters? Man, they come into the church and they're like pumped up and they're on fire. And people say, well, look at that guy. Look at that guy. That guy. Look, at, look at that woman. And they just go. They're just going, going, going. And, and two weeks later, they burn out and they're gone. The Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. I've been running with Jesus for 40 years. And it's one step at a time. Day by day. Day by day. And you look every day to be a little better. You ever see the movie Groundhog Day? I love Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day is the top five, right? In Pastor Frank's movies. I love it. Every year in February, Sue and I, right, we sit down and we watch Groundhog Day. And we've been doing that for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. 
And it's about a guy who's just trying to get it right. He's living the same day over and over. Bill Murray living the day, same day over and over every day. And you're just trying to get it right. It's a great example. And it is really a great challenge of a great way to live. That every day when you get up, man, put a sign on the wall. Today is Groundhog Day. And today I'm going to seek just to, to be a little better. To just get it a little more right. Maybe to love a little better, right? To care a little better, to have a little, little more compassion, to listen a little better, to be a little bit kinder, maybe to pray a little better, right? To be a better witness for Jesus, just a little bit every day. And just what happens is, is really something uh, fantastic is that when you improve little by little, it's amazing when you come to the end of a month or the end of a quarter or the end of the year that you have made these drastic improvements in your life. But again, it's just, it's just a marathon. It's just one step after another. That is the, essentially the Christian life. Getting a little better, improving a little every day. It's a race. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race, here he mentions the race again, all run, but one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is, is temperate in all things. They're balanced. They're, they're disciplined. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight. Now notice this. He compares the Christian life to a fight. Not as one who beats the air. Right? A, a fighter right, would, would not be aimlessly just punching the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should not be disqualified. A, a fighter, right? they essentially train with purpose. The, the ultimate purpose of a fighter, and again, this could be, this could be competition, you know, it could be wrestling, jiu-jitsu, or boxing, or karate. You, you train with a purpose of essentially defeating your enemy. And there's a, a clear purpose there. So you, you essentially train with a purpose. Let me just ask you this. How many of you, you have a training plan for your Christian life? Anybody? I, I have taught and, and, you know, taught from the word training, you know, again, training systems. We need to have a training system of prayer, of, of Bible study, right, of, of worship, of service, of giving. And, you know, I think that's essentially what the scripture is saying. We train, we train to win the fight. Why, why again, are so many Christians getting, getting whipped by the devil? Some people, this, this past couple of months, they get whipped. The devil whipping them down because they're untrained. We have some people here, skilled, they're skilled martial artists, skilled fighters. And if somebody attacked them on the street, I'll tell you, they're likely going to be attacking the wrong person. They're going to get whipped because the person's trained. Well, guess what? When you leave here today... The devil's going to be right there. He's going to attack you. Are you trained and prepared when he attacks? Are you prepared for the fight? 
Think about that. The Christian life, right, it's a race, it's fun. I'll give you one more. The Christian life is a climb. In Psalm 24.3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place, it is, it is an, an ascending, it is a climb. We, we essentially, in our Christian life, we are, we are climbing, right, this great mountain. Every day taking another step, right, up the ladder, looking to improve, looking to get better, right, always looking, right, to advance. I want to read to you this. I don't know who wrote this, and I wish I did, but it's an unknown author. I found this on the internet a while back. Let me read it to you. It's just fantastic. We realize early in our Christian life that we start at the bottom floor of the staircase, right? Our main goal is to get up to the top while first beginning to ascend. The climb seems to go easy and fast, right? Have you found that my, my early days in my Christian life, they were breeze. After all, the, the need for change was evident and our goals for coming to Christ were clear. Who wants to stay on the bottom step? I would wonder if a person is even a Christian who would want that. As we keep climbing, sometimes we wonder if we will ever make it to the top. Boy. Our muscles ache and our heart pounds at times. We pray for an elevator or escalator to make the climb easier, right? <laughs> How many have ever done that, right? <laughs> but God makes sure that we consciously have to make a choice to go each step. And God is not in a rush. He waits patiently, lovingly, and relentlessly for us to catch our breath and relax. At these times of rest, we look down and see what we have had to overcome just to get this high. God does not let us know how far we still have to go. But we still get overwhelmed thinking about the remaining climb. We gaze at the top, keep looking up, and taking one step at a time. And at some levels, the, re the rest is nice with balconies and water fountains. At other times, only by faith do we keep climbing. We know that climbing back down would be a mistake, but we think about it sometimes. Other times, we just want to sit right where we are without climbing, and, uh, without climbing up. Just kind of hanging out for a while in one place. We pace those on our way up. Uh, we pass those on our ways, way up. Uh, the stairs who are hanging out in their spot. And then sometimes we step aside to let someone pass by who is heading back down the stairs. Those of us who continue upward know that the temptation to stop is not a valid option because we hear the Lord calling to go higher and higher. In our heart of hearts, we know that when we finally arrive, we will be so happy we kept climbing. There is no hurry, but no advantage to slowing down either. So we pray for a steady pace, understanding each level, and making a conscious decision to move up and onward. Where are you today on your staircase to God? Are you hanging out, taking a break? Or are you seriously contemplating heading back down? Keep a couple of things in mind. Fix your eyes upward. 
towards the top and listen for God's voice. Not only is the Lord calling you to come, to keep moving, but he's also waiting for you. And the best part of all is this. He is with you in every step you take. So today, lift your head up and get moving. The prize awaits at the end. Isn't that great? I don't know who wrote it, but uh, make, make that on the, uh, put it on the website. There is great joy. I listen, I think maybe one of the top joys I have ever experienced in my life is the joy of climbing. It is just the joy of, of growing. It, you know, to me, growing and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 65 years old. I still am enjoying, and let me tell you something, enjoying with a passion, growth, learning. You know, I, I use the term, can I, continuous and never-ending improvement. And not just merely in my spiritual life, physically, psychologically, just, just growing relationally. It is, it is just such a, a great adventure. And I tell, pe- I tell people that that is one of the great things that gets me out of bed in the morning, that today is a day to grow. Today is a day to get better. And I just want to say this to you. If you understand this, if you grow yourself, everything around you grows. Tell people, enlarge yourself, and you will enlarge the things around you. So it's just, again, it is a great experience of, you know, of joy to grow. Okay, number two, don't whine. If you've been studying with me through the book of Numbers, you've heard this before. Do all things without complaining and disputing. The word there for complaining is the word murmuring. And murmuring was a real problem that the Israelites had. It, it basically cost them an entire generation to die in the desert or not enter the promised land, created divisions, created a tremendous stress on the leadership, and really ticked off God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9 and 11, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble. At, that's just another word for right whining, complaining as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, right? There's a great, learn from other people's mistakes. I'm telling you, there's, there's great lessons from the scriptures of those who did right, and then there's great lessons of people who really screwed up. Learn those lessons, They will help you to live a very effective and efficient life in this world. So here, you go into Numbers. They complained against Moses and God. And God brought forth snakes, poisonous snakes that bit a bunch of them and they died. Miriam complained, right? Miriam and Aaron complained against Moses. What had happened to her? He turned her as white as snow, leprous. Korah and his crew rebelled against God and Moses and Aaron. What happened to them? The earth swallowed them up. Korah and his squad, right? They ended up being swallowed up in the earth. 
So you, you get a picture here. God don't like complaining. God don't like whining, murdering, uh, murmuring, or, or grumbling. And we look at this and we say, well, that's, you know, that's the Old Testament. God don't, you know, God don't, you know, put people to death today. He don't send poisonous snakes, right? He, he don't open the ground to swallow them up. This is a time of grace. We could sin with immunity, right? We can just sin, whether, again, doing things we shouldn't be doing or not doing what we shouldn't. God is, God is just going to just gonna bless. No, you know what? I want to show you one passage. This is a passage that has always really kind of bothered me and concerned me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27-31, the Corinthians were a dysfunctional bunch. They, um, they were complainers, whiners. They created divisions. They, when they gathered together, were becoming a bunch of drunks. And they totally dishonored the Lord's Supper. Really mocking it. So watch, watch what is said here. So you have, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He says, for this reason, many are weak. I believe this is talking about physically weak. Some, there are some who say it's spiritual. Most say it's talking about the physical. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You know what sleep means. They dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. It's talking about God's judgment in the body of Christ. But when we are judged, we are right, chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So these are saved people. I want to tell you, I, I have seen this. I've seen this many times right here. Of, of people who are just blatantly disobeying God. And there's weakness, there's sickness, and sometimes, you know what? God just takes them out. And I've seen God take out. I've done their funerals. And I, I believe God took them out of this world because of the dissension and the problems they were creating in, in, in the church. So it's, a, it's again, it's a, it's a strong warning about whining. And complaining. I want to give you a, give you a couple of, of key things here about complaining. Complaining creates a culture of negativity which kills. And that's, that's the, the culture that you have with the Corinthians. Right? It was, it was a, a complaining, whining culture that was killing the koinonia, the very fellowship of the church and killing their faith and their love for God and for one another. Second one here, complaining makes things worse. It always makes things worse. And you see again in Corinthians, it, you know, it goes from bad to worse. When you go through the first book of Corinthians, it gets worse in the second book. 
But it never, it never, complaining never makes things better. It doesn't. Number three here, complaining takes time and energy away from real problem solving. Complainers, whiners, they never stop problems. They moan, they, they, they gripe, right? But they never solve the problem. It doesn't, it, it never fixes a problem. When you have a problem or there is a problem in the body of Christ, you need to fix it. And if it's unfixable, and sometimes there are some problems that are unfixable. I don't think there's a lot of them. And I haven't come across a lot of them in my life. But at times there are some problems that we may have that are absolutely unfixable. And that's where then you give it up to God and you trust him. You trust him and you manage yourself in the midst of it. Uh, 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 another one here. Complaining is easy. It doesn't require effort or discipline. But it's just, it's just easy to complain about problems. I mean, it's, it, it, it's lazy. It takes effort and discipline to fix a problem. Complaining is habit forming. That's what you see in Israel. The wanderers and them dying in the desert. It, it became just a, a, a pattern that was habitual. Once you start complaining, it's hard to stop. It gets easier each time you do it. And essentially what it becomes is it becomes a default mechanism, essentially a reaction, when things don't go the way you want. Right? You immediately default to it and you start complaining. So habit becomes to some an addiction. And you know what? It actually becomes like a drug because the person complaining, you'll notice this, doesn't accomplish anything, is totally useless, is totally valueless, but it makes them feel good. You'll notice that. People who complain, they, when they vent on you, it makes them feel good. Complaining is contagious. People feel compelled to communicate their complaints and criticisms, and they want, right, they want other people to share in their negative perspectives. I used to listen to complainers. It almost drove me out of the ministry. I was out with John Maxwell, the leadership coach in San Diego, and, and John, and I was just, you know, I'm telling you, I was, I was like, I'm going back in the fitness business. It's much easier to make fat people skinny and skinny people muscular than building a church. And I was really, I'll tell you, I was hanging by a thread. And John says to me, how much counseling do you do? How many hours? I said, oh, 24, 28 counseling sessions a week. And he said, you should be a psychologist. Because God didn't call you to be a psychologist. He called you to be a leader of the body of Christ and preach and teach the word and lead the church. And I'll tell you, that was one of the most liberating and free moments because that's when I kind of dumped this thing because people were just coming to me who didn't want to fix their problems. They just wanted to vent about them. 
And apparently what happened with a lot of people, their family didn't want to hear it anymore. So they come to the church and they start venting on the pastor. Complaining destroys your credibility. People who complain over and over and over again. And when you see somebody complaining all the time, it just is, it, it reveals their weakness. It, it, we, it, it just reveals they're, they're totally disempowered. And it reveals their selfishness and their self-centeredness where they think the whole world is resol- revolving around them. One more. Complaining is bad for your brain and body. Neuroscientists, doctors, okay? The neuroscientists, you ever, you ever listen to Dr. Amen? He's, he's not a Christian. He is the top neuroscientist in the world. And what he does is he, he, he did all these studies on brains and the effect that drugs have on the brain, alcohol has on the brain. And then he started anxiety and fear and anger. And it's amazing how those things literally destroy the brain. And he came out and he says that essentially complaining, train, uh, complaining turns the brain into mush. <laughs> and if you see the actual brain scans, it's mushy. It also destroys your immune system. It's the re- it causes the release of cortisone, which basically breaks down your immunity. So you know the, the scripture gives us this, this illustration, right? We, we, we struggle between the sarks, which translated the, fr- the flesh of the old man, and the spirit. And essentially what it is, is there, there are two essentially attitudes, mental states, habitual ways of, of thinking and feeling, uh, essentially habit, mental habit zones, spiritual zones that we live in. The sarks can be classified as self-centeredness, and the spirit can be classified as Christ-centeredness. What you see, what you see in the book of Philippians, again, is when you're in the complaint zone, you're in the sarks, and when you're in the spirit, you're in the re- rejoice zone. And the the truth of the matter is, you can always find something to complain about. Isn't that true? Just look at the world, right? Look at what's going on. and Look at these these marches of anti-Semitism and Nazism that's going on all over the world. And on our college campus, you want to send your kids to one of those schools to get indoctrinated? They'll just totally rip whatever faith they have right out of their little heart. Now, you can complain about Washington. You can complain about taxes. You can complain about your spouse. You can complain about your children. You can always find something to complain about. You can also always find something to rejoice about. You could always find something to rejoice about. And if you're in a place this morning where you're sitting there and going, oh, listen, my, night, my, life is, my life is absolutely miserable. It's as miserable, man. It's, a, it's as bad and it's as miserable as I can find. I mean, you ever meet that person? Oh, my life is hard. If you're that person, and if your life is really that bad, I'll tell you, there's one thing you can always rejoice in. 
Rejoice in the Lord. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he never changes. And no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad it is, you can always rejoice in the Lord. Right? So rejoice and don't whine. All right, number three, shine. Wasn't there a song that we used to sing? Shine, baby, shine. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, 14 through 16, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. If you notice here in the text, it's essentially talking here about essentially a, a, a moral shining. Shining forth your morality. Be blameless. Be harmless. Be children without fault in a the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Isn't that where we live right now? I was just, just in visiting Pete, Pete uh, Pingle, and the man next to him is a pastor from Hackensack. I think I picked up, definitely from the islands. And um, he prayed with us. We prayed for him. And he, um, he said, he goes, this is such an evil time, right? People, they, you know, they... They call evil, right, evil good and good evil. And we started, we started talking. Things are, things are really dark. So really, it doesn't take a lot to shine in such a terrible time of darkness. So he says here, hold fast the word of life. Because it's, it, it's the scriptures, really, that, that connect us with the spirit and with God and you know, when you're in the Bible and the Bible's in you and you're living it and you're obeying it and you're proclaiming it, you're going to shine forth your life. What did Jesus say? He said, don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't, don't be a bushel, Christian. Right? Don't, 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 don't be a bushel, Christian. <laughs> bushel, Christians hide their light. So you, you, want, you want your light to shine. You want your love to shine. You want your compassion to shine. You want the truth to shine through you. You're going to speak it. You're going to live it. You know, this is a, an hour to speak the truth because there are loads of voices that are speaking lies. Have you noticed that? And we got an opportunity to speak the truth. So we shine. Shine. Right? Baby shine. <laughs> I know that's the song. I don't know who said that. Shine, baby shine. But maybe I did. Shine. Let your light shine to the world. All right, last one here. Be wine. So it says in Philippians chapter 2, 14 through 18, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Notice 
I am being poured out as a drink offering. That is what Paul here is saying. What did the drink offering consist of? Lemonade? Kool-Aid? Yeah, what did it consist of? Yeah, it consisted of wine. Fermented, right? Grape juice. And that is what was what when, when Jacob, and Jacob's the first one that you see in chapter 34 of Genesis, who he basically he poured out the drink offering unto the Lord on the altar. You see the Leviticus, right? The, in, in Leviticus, you see the Levitical priesthood there, uh, 30, I think it's 34 or 35 times, where it talks about the drink offering. Paul here is saying, I am a drink offering. Paul is saying here, I have poured out my life unto Jesus. I, I have poured out my life unto you, Philippians, and unto the church, and really unto the world. That was the entire life of Paul. His entire life was a, an offering, was a drink offering. I, mean, I don't know if there's anyone all through history who can even come close, outside of Jesus, who poured out their life like this little Jewish rabbi, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. But his entire life was just an act of love being poured out, sacrificial love. And you see in the scriptures what he went through. How many of us, you know, even experiencing maybe one of the things Paul went through, we would have quit. That's enough. And Paul poured it out right unto his death. When he laid down his life in Rome, and as a Roman citizen, he was not crucified, but he was beheaded. But he, he gave it all. He, he gave it all. A life poured out for the glory of Jesus. Now, I don't compare myself anywhere near Paul, but I can say this. A life poured out is a joyful life. There is, there is, some, there is a thrill and there is an excitement of just pouring out your life and giving your best. You know, it's easy now doing this. This is, this is my calling. But just pouring out my life. This morning, as I studied the word, and as I prayed, as I went up to the hospital, spent some time, some hurting people, just pouring out your life. And you know, I don't do it because it makes me feel good, but I got to tell you this, it feels good. It feels good. Sitting, sitting home on the couch, right? Don't make me feel good. It really makes me feel good. So rejoice in pouring yourself out. So conclusion, climb. Don't whine, shine, be wine. And when you go home to your unsafe family members and they say, what did Pastor Frank teach you today? Say, he taught us to climb, don't whine, shine, and be wine. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. I want to tell you, since 
the day I got saved, pretty much I prayed this prayer daily. Lord, I want to make my life count for something great. I want to make my life count for something eternal, something that will go into eternity, right, and have a, you know, an effect that will last forever. I, I don't want to live just, you know, a mediocre, apathetic, selfish life, building my own kingdom, but really building a life that will go on. So I want to share. I want to share this video with you. If, if, if Justin, we get the sound up. I've shown this to you off and on through the years. This is from the movie Papillon with Steve McQueen. He's in prison and he has this dream. And watch it's 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 really it's very powerful. charge. I'm innocent. I didn't kill that pimp. You couldn't get anything on me. And you framed me. That is quite true. But your real crime has nothing to do with a pimp's death. Well then, what is it? Yours is the most terrible crime a human being can commit. I accuse you of a wasted life. Guilty. The penalty for that is death. Guilty. Guilty. You know what? All my trophies, which are gone, my awards, my degrees, my 401k, my education, it's not going with me. Only what I've done for Christ is going with me. That's it. Only one life. Right? will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Has God touched your heart today? Is God speaking to your heart today? I hope so. 
He gave his life for you. Gave you his very best. You know what he says? Now give me your very best. Believe in me. Receive me. Trust in me. Come to me just as you are. With all your sins, but believing you're a sinner. Take me into your life by faith. And then live for me. Live for me now. Follow me. Make your life crown for something great. Amen.